Good morning. I'm Mark DeCosmaker. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. This morning's passage will be Psalm 32. It can be found on page 462 in the Pew Bible. At Christ Community, it is our tradition to rise for the reading of God's Word, so if you please rise. There was a time when I didn't need these glasses to read this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sins to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess, confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you will forgive the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's work. Thank you, Mark. Well, this uh, sermon this morning is a continuation of last week's sermon on Psalm 32. Psalm 32, as we said, is one of the seven penitential psalms or songs of repentance. So if you find yourself in a place of um, needing to repent, uh, it's helpful to have some Bible language to go to, and the Psalms provide that in many ways. And Psalm 32 is one of those Psalms that you want to be familiar with. The Psalm, as you can see at the beginning of uh, the Psalm, is attributed to David, the king of Jerusalem. And it's um, attributed to him as he, he's written it after he repents of an affair, a murder, and a cover-up. So the great king, the, the man after God's own heart, finds himself in a place that he never could have imagined. He, he's, having a, he's had an affair. He's gotten a woman, Bathsheba, pregnant. Try, in an effort to try to cover up, he calls her husband back and tries to force him to sleep with her at a time of war, which men didn't do. So this man, Uriah, was upright and stayed away from his wife, and that infuriated David. And so he sent him back to war and said, hey... When the, when the fighting gets difficult, he said this to one of his commanders, withdraw from Uriah and let him fight alone until he dies. And then he just forgets about it like it never happened. He marries Bathsheba, goes on, and he thinks he's just hidden it. Nobody's going to know. 
the, the poem divides very easily into two parts. Verses 1 through 5 is autobiography. David tells about how he felt about this uh, hidden sin or this unconfessed sin. And those verses 6 through 11, which we'll look at this morning, is advice. If you've heard what he said, now this is how you should act or, or react to what he said. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 where David provides this sort of 3D description of what it felt like to be silent about his sin. And I'm sure these are familiar uh, feelings for some of us. My, it felt like my, my bones were wasting away. I, I kept this thing inside my soul. And, and literally it means I felt like an old man. Here was this young, vigorous king. And, and yet because he kept this stuff trapped inside of him, he just felt like he was an old man and he was groaning all day long. And we talked about this last week that this word groaning uh, better translated in the King James as roaring. This unconfessed sin uh, creates like a, a roar of a train in David's mind. You can't see it from the outside, but it's always speaking to him day and night. You know you're the one. You're, you know you're the one that's trying to hide. You know you're the one that's trying to cover up. David's unconfessed sin produces a, a guilty roar in his soul. Night and day. God's hand was heavy upon David. There, there's, no, there's no relief. There's no escape from God's heavy hand. Charles Spurgeon, better a world on your shoulders like Atlas than God's hand on your heart like David. He just can't get away from the pressure. No matter how, how he tries to shift the weight, it never really brings any relief. And finally, my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. All, all of this hiddenness has just sucked all the life out of David's soul. And so if, if you were to visit him emotionally, he's a desert. He doesn't have anything to give back out because it's been sucked out from this unconfessed sin. And as we saw again last week in verse 5, thankfully there's a path to pardon. Uh, we don't have to live in this place. And the path to pardon, as you might remember, it, it's not denial, which is what David was trying to do. But it's a, a declaration. It's, it's not saying, I just swept that underneath the rug. I, I don't want to think about it. It's No, it's exposing it. It's, it's cutting it open and letting uh, the light of God's presence shine upon this unconfessed sin. And so you see this, what he, again, he attacks this in three ways. I acknowledged my sin to you. I, I did not cover up my iniquity. I confessed my transgressions. And then notice in verse 6, this transitional word, word therefore. In other words, David's saying, now that you've read my biography, and I've tried to be as descriptive in this poem as I could, therefore, now that you've heard about me, if, if any part of my sinful resume re resonates in your own soul, if you've been keeping a sin silent, if you've been hearing the guilty roar, if you've felt the heavy hand of God, then take action. He's giving an autobiography to say, I've, do, I've done what you've done. I felt just like you felt. I've tried to, to say it as clearly as I can. Now, you may feel that. And so, therefore, now take action. 
Offer prayers to God, verse 6, at a time when God may be found. David's pleading for this immediate action. Pray at this very moment. Pray while you're sensitive to God's heavy hand. Pray while your soul is still thirsty. I mentioned this um, story last week about the Grand Canyon where these young girls were carrying these backpacks and they really just wanted somebody else to carry it. But if you ever go to the Grand Canyon, one of the things that they tell you about is they're worried about dehydration. And so there's all kinds of signs. It'd be very hard to, to miss it. And you're always carrying water and they have water stops and all that sort of thing. But they give you all the, the uh, physical symptoms of when you start becoming dehydrated. This is how you, of course, you start feeling thirsty. And then you start, you have all these physical manifestations. But one of the reasons they're, they're so careful to want you to act on the first thirst is that if you uh, disobey or disregard those physical manifestations... Pretty soon, you're not thirsty anymore. You, you're dying of thirst, and you get thirsty, but if you ignore it, then you lose that thirsty feeling. And when we were walking down, about a mile from the top, there was a little marker where a young lady, she's a mile from the top of the rim, and she died because she just didn't have enough to drink. And all along the way, she had these physical signs. I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. Oh, I'm almost out. And David's saying, while your soul is thirsty, because there will be a time, or there could come a time when your, your soul is no longer thirsty. You've just ignored the signs. And he's saying, while, you, the, 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 while you're feeling it right now, pray, act Right now, David knows you can resist the, the heavy hand. And there may be a, come a time when there, you just don't feel that thirst and then you cannot be found. It doesn't mean that God is unwilling to forgive. It, it means that there's a time you become so hard, so stubborn, so numb, you're unwilling to repent. God can always be found. The problem is on our side of the equation, we feel it and then we ignore it and then we let it go and then we become hardened. I attended a leadership forum this past weekend or this past week and uh, a speaker gave this very clarifying statement that I want to say to you and might be helpful as well. Let's listen carefully. He was talking about relationships and the power of entering into relationships and he says this, the health of any relationship, team or organization, the health of any relationship, whether it's a team or organization, could be a family, could be a church. The health of any of these things is a function of the average lag time between identifying and discussing problems. The health of any relationship is a function of the average time Time lag between identifying and discuss, discussing a problem. If you have a problem in a relationship and you can address it right away, then you have a healthy relationship. But if you have, if you can identify a problem in a relationship, a team, an organization, and a church, but there's an extended lag time between identification and discussion, then you have an unhealthy 
relationship. And David once had this healthy relationship with God, but, but now is, he's on life support. Because he can identify the problem, but he's created this enormous lag time from identifying the problem to confessing, to discussing the problem with God. So, so David is begging, he's pleading, now that you've read my biography, don't, don't, do, don't do what I did. Don't go silent. Don't wait until you're dry as a desert. Don't wait until your relationship's on life support. Don't allow this lag time between identifying the problem and discussing the problem. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, as it has been said. And then he picks up an Old Testament quote, Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Encourage one another as you get together. It's so easy to have a hard heart. So encourage one another to, to confess your sins one to another, to confess your sins to God. Because if you don't, you can get a hard heart. And this word hardened in the Greek is scleros. Scleros. What happens if you have hardening of the arteries. Atherosclerosis. Your, your heart, your, your veins get hardened. Over time, there's a buildup. And this heart that was once beating for the Lord somehow gets stopped up by sin. And, and it's supposed to get, get opened up by confession, but it, it just builds on each other because you're hiding, you're, you're silent, and then heart attack. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. You may be walking around physically, but you just become spiritually dead to the things of God, the voice of God. Probably five people in here will remember this song. And you don't need to ask me how I know the song. But there's a, uh, a singer named Leona Lewis, 2007. She sang a song called Bleeding Love. Now, you're saying, why did a 51-year-old man know Leanna Lewis? Well, I've got a little soul in me somewhere, and when she sings, you should see me rocking out in my tinted windows in my car. <laughs> and I really like that song. She has this great, great line in it. My heart's crippled by the vein that I keep on closing. My heart's crippled by the vein that I keep on closing. See, I've got this unconfessed sin and I keep shutting off this vein. And what happens? Heart attack. I'm spiritually drying up. I'm like a, I'm like a desert. And so she says, remember what Leo says? You cut me open. Keep, keep, okay, I won't do it, but I mean, that's the song. It's not, it's not a religious song, but it's a, it's a good song. So David's saying, while you can be found, while your heart beats for the things of God, don't close off your, yourself to God. Pray, because if you don't, hardening occurs. And then he basically says the same thing. Look in verse 9. He's going to try to have a new uh, metaphor here. Verse 9, don't be a mule. Don't be a horse. Don't be an animal. Don't act like an animal. 
David knew his sin. He knew the path to pardon was through confession. Yet like a stubborn mule, he just refused to move. He knew he was wrong. He knew what he should do. But he's just stubborn. He just sat down and said, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to say I'm wrong. And I'm guessing most of you are familiar with this kind of stubborn streak in your own heart. Are you not? I mean, you've had an argument. It might be with your sister or brother. It might be with your mom or dad. It might be with your neighbor. It might be with your boss. It might be with your spouse. It really doesn't matter. But you've had this argument. You've had this knockdown, drag out argument. And you were wrong. But because of pride, you just kept arguing your side. And you walk away from your friend, your spouse, your family member and an unseen emotional barrier comes up. And if you could just swallow your pride, if you could just bring your sin out into the light, if you could just say I was wrong, then then almost all these walls just easily dissolve. But but you're stubborn and like a mule, you refuse to move. No, that's what David was acting like. He knows exactly what he's done. He knows exactly what he should do. But he just sits down and says, I'm not going to move. And, and he's saying, don't be like that, because if you're like that and, and, and God is after you, then he's going to treat you like a mule. And he's instead of coming, saying, please, please open up to me. He's going to put bit and bridle. And he's going to drag it out in some way that's not preferable. So please come while, while you're not acting like a mule. Second Chronicles 33. This is a passage you'd want to read later today. Verse 10 or 15 verses. Second Chronicles 33. The Chronicles chronicle the lives of the kings in Israel and Judah. And here we're getting down towards the end of the time for Judah and Manasseh becomes a king. Now, his father before him had been a very faithful king. He'd been able to see what the faithful king's kingdom was like, but Manasseh was not faithful. And let me just give you a, a taste of Manasseh's biography. First Chronicles 33, 1 through 9. Manasseh bowed down to all the starry host and worshiped them. Manasseh built altars to foreign gods in the temple of the Lord. Manasseh sacrificed his own sons in the fire. He practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. And Manasseh, as the king, led all of the people of Jerusalem away. That's his biography. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Manasseh and the people, comma. How about then the Lord eliminated Manasseh and the people? That's what I would have a tendency to think. But what does he do? He comes he's speaking. Manasseh, you, you know, you're doing it the wrong way. You're so far off. 
And here's your time. I'm, I'm coming to speak. I'm coming to speak uh, gently. I'm coming to speak caringly. I'm coming to speak disciplining. Let, let's, move, let's go in a different direction. Let's repent. You're, you're so far off. Would you come and follow me? And then there's this comma. We don't know how long it lasts. God speaking to Manasseh and speaking to the people and saying, please come back. Don't be like a mule. Comma. But the people paid no attention and neither did Manasseh. So Manasseh is moving in the wrong direction. He's trying to hide it. He's trying to pretend like it doesn't matter. And the God, God comes to speak to him tenderly. He says, I'm not paying attention. And so God has to bring out what? Bit and bridle. So the Lord brought against them the army of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner. Listen. They put a hook in his nose. And bound him with bronze shackles and dragged him 500 miles to Babylon. Imagine walking with a hook in your nose with a rope or a chain attached to it for 500 miles. And Manasseh had a long time to say, oh, he, he spoke. Why, did, why didn't I move at that point? Why did he have to bring out the bit and the bridle? Why am I walking on this 500-mile journey with this, this ring in my nose like a mule being led? In his distress, I can imagine, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord, his God. He humbled himself greatly. Oh, why didn't you do this before? Then, listen, same as Psalm 32, Manasseh prayed. See, that's what David's saying. Do you, do you feel God's heavy hand? Do you, you hear his voice? Don't harden your heart. Pray today. Pray right away. So incredible, the grace of God. Manasseh prayed. The Lord was moved by his prayer God listened to his plea. God brought him back to Jerusalem. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I mean, it, it, it is a great moment at the end. But you're saying, Manasseh, this could have been it without the ring in your nose. Don't be like a mule. And maybe that's where you are today. You know it. It's an identifiable problem. You know the way... To freedom, the way home is God speaking to you and say, you got to say something. You got to come to me. You got to confess. You got to acknowledge. But you're just sitting down. Please, I'm pleading with you. Do not be a mule. Do not wait until God has to get the bit and bridle out in your life and pull it out into his light and the light of everyone else. Verses six and seven. Remember, this is poetry and try to absorb the. The feeling and imagery David uses to commit, communicate the relief he has in this uh, joy of praying for forgiveness. Verse 6, great, great waters may come. If I, I've offered a prayer and, and when this great, great rush of waters come, they're not going to reach me. And, and the great rush of waters in the Old Testament is, is judgment, God's judgment. God's judgment's going to come rushing in one day like a great flood, like a, a, a dam that's been broken open. 
And what's David saying? Yeah, it's not going to reach me. Because I've confessed, I've forgiven, I'm standing on a rock that's higher than the flood. And then verse 7, I love this. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What, what do the shouts of deliverance replace? David's now standing this, in this secure place and around him are shouts of deliverance. And what are those shouts Replace. I think the shouts replace the guilty roar of verse 3. When David kept silent about his sin, there was a guilty roar of condemnation. But, but once there's confession, the, the guilty roar dies away and it's replaced with shouts of, 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 of deliverance. Transgressions forgiven. Sins covered. Iniquity not counted. See, David's standing in a place and he could still say, but I did this. And God's saying, but it's been forgiven. So I'm shouting towards you saying, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. And, and, and on the cross, what does Jesus say at the very end? It is, it's finished. Praise the Lord. It's done. It's paid for. It's accounted for. It's not counting against you anymore. And many of you need to hear that feeling. You're still living, saying, I'm still bearing something that's been born for you. And so I want you to hear me say, when you've come to the Lord, it is finished. It's over being paid for. Now, you may have to live with consequences of your actions, but you will not have to pay for your actions. And that's a big difference. Two examples I think you can find in the in the New Testament that talk, I think, towards this shout of deliverance. Remember when uh, Paul says at the very end of Romans 7, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. I mean, he's looking at himself and saying, you know, I just don't look very good. Who, who could possibly rescue me? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And and this uh, roar of guilt gets replaced with the, the shouts of deliverance in verse eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's just it's just replaced. Paul saying, this is what I hear now. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Who will separate me from the love of Christ? I'm convinced that neither death or life, angels, demons, the presence of the future, powers, height, depth, nor anything in all creation. Nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. That's such a great word. That's the shout of deliverance. That Paul's saying, you need to have this word going into your soul, saying you've been forgiven. And now nothing can separate you from the love of God. I think the second example, Luke chapter 7, Jesus is a dinner guest with the Pharisees. And he comes in and he's having dinner and a woman in town finds out that Jesus is in town. And the woman is a notorious sinner. Some people say she was in prostitution. That's how she was notorious. It's, it doesn't say exactly. But whatever she was into, everybody knew she was into it. And she rushes in and breaks into this uh, dinner party as an uninvited guest. And you remember what she starts doing? 
She has a bottle of perfume. She mixes it with her tears. Starts washing and wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. What a great sign of repentance. I'm I'm saying it to you. I'm saying it in front of everybody else. I'm not worthy. Remember what the Pharisees said? If this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's a guilty roar. Here she is, she's confessing. In here you have the uh, looking down their nose religious type saying, hey, she's a sinner. That's what she's been hearing all her life. And now she's coming to confess. And the guilty roar gets replaced with a shout of deliverance. Remember what Jesus says? You're forgiven. (laughs) Imagine what lifted off of this woman's life when Jesus says in the midst of the Pharisees saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. He breaks in. He busts that group up and says, you're forgiven. Sins counted no more. Transgressions forgiven. Sinner to daughter. It's incredible. And maybe some of you need to hear that shout of deliverance that your sin is forgiven. I would encourage you to do that, not to be a mule. To stay seated in some place of unconfessed sin. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, in verse 10, basically, David summarizes uh, what's happened to him. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Oh, how many. But the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then just like he just can't keep it down, he's he blows the lid off at the very end of his song. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. David was a charismatic He's, he's raising his hands. He's shouting. He's standing up. He, he's, he's feeling this relief. He's just saying, I just got to say it over and over again with different words. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm rejoicing. I'm shouting with joy. And why is he shouting with joy? Why? Not just because he's been forgiven. He knows the gospel. This is the incredible part of this poem. Look with me in verse 11. Be glad. Rejoice, O righteous. Righteous. I mean, you might be forgiven, but righteous? David, you're saying you're righteous? See, David has a sense of the gospel here. This, this, think about this one sinful episode for David. He has to break at least five of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife. So there's only one hope for David. That is the unbelievable mercy of God. And so he cast himself 
And this is the incredible part, easy to read over. When David comes to God, he doesn't just find forgiveness. What else does he find that God's handing out? Righteousness. This is the gospel. This is what makes it so incredible. It would be incredible enough if you came or I came or David comes and we come to God and we find forgiveness. Praise the Lord. That's what I was looking for. But he doesn't just take something away. He gives something. This is the gospel. This is the good news. He gives his righteousness. So now when he looks on David, he no longer sees David as the sinner. He sees him as the perfect, righteous son of the living God. It's incredible. I don't know how I could possibly explain it. That when you come up for communion this morning and you know all of your sin, you don't even know all of your sin, but all of the sin that you know. You come up with a different robe on this morning. And he looks at you and says, that's my son, that's my daughter. You're not just forgiven, you're given righteousness. Paul works this psalm in Psalm 32 into Romans 4. To the one who does not work, meaning for their salvation... Working for your salvation is called religion. To the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, but trust God who justifies the wicked, but trust God who just if I'd never sinned, no matter how wicked I am, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he says in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's Romans 4, quoting Psalm 32, knowing that David had some sense of the gospel that he's just not forgiven. He's also given righteousness. So this morning, as we come for communion, such a perfect Sunday. It's not for those who are holy. It's for those who are righteous and being made holy by the blood of Christ. Those who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. They understand, they confess their sin, they've opened up themselves to God's mercy and grace and his righteousness. If you haven't, it's, it's, it's necessary for you just to sit quietly and just ask yourself, what is it you're depending on for salvation, for eternal life? If you're here as a believer, don't be a mule. Don't think God's not going to bring out his bit and his bridle. Confess your sins before the Lord. And he is faithful and just to forgive. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to these uh, common elements that you used on the night of your own betrayal, looking at those whom would betray you and flee and deny they even knew you, you took the bread and said, this is my body. I'm, I'm going to be torn so that you might be alive. Or whole. I'm, my blood is going to be spilled for your salvation.
I pray that as every son and daughter comes forward this morning, they have a sense of the incredible grace that you've given them. Would you minister to them in ways that are unseen now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.